if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to first letter, the first book of Kings. It's quite a long story, it's one familiar, but it's good for us to have the text before us as we reflect on this well-known story together. Um, as I've said often before, they probably think the only thing Elizabeth and I do is, is ever watch the television, which is not the case, I hasten to add. Um, but nonetheless, after we'd watched what we were going to watch, um, we put it on, but most nights we try and watch the 11 o'clock news. I've mentioned that to you before, and I would encourage you, and it does concern me sometimes, I think we have a tendency to kind of, our wee world shrinks down awfully easily to me and my own kin and the concerns round about me. That's really, that's actually not really very Christian. And, and, and we really need to think a bit bigger, old, wider, out of way. And so I'd encourage you, and there's plenty of ways now in social media and various other ways to be able to find out what's happening in the world. But I encourage you to do that. I always have and always will encourage you to do that. And quite often we watch the 11 o'clock news in the BBC news channel, because at least there you don't just get bombarded with who's going to be the leader of the Conservative Party. And one of the very sad stories that came to our attention last night was of a great drought that's taking place once again in the Horn of Africa. Some of us may be familiar of that because we're aware of that. And they interviewed the leader, the, the head man of one of the villages, and he was saying how he had had to, all his animals had died. The drought has lasted for, this is the, this will be into the fourth year where, you know, they've had, they've had three years of drought. And they're now reliant on provision made by, well, through the Kenyan government, but through other countries in the world providing corn for them to have food because their animals have died, their fields have become just barren, parched deserts. And without the support of the global community, they would starve. And actually made the point, the headman made the point, that actually those who get sent to get the supplies are those who are most vulnerable. So it's families and older people that are sent to get the supplies. Everybody else just tries to try and kind of <laughs> make the best of it as you can. And so even there, there's have to be a form of rationing. And it was in the connection to the situation in Ukraine and in Russia. Perhaps, again, some of us are aware, and I do say this, please do become aware of what's going on in the world that God has placed us in. This deal that's supposedly been made between Russia and Ukraine to allow wheat to be shipped from the Black Sea to, because much of that wheat, the billions of tons of that wheat, feed actually not so much us in the West, where we get a lot of our wheat from Canada and the United States and other places and even our own country, but feed actually what is often known as the third world. And they're dependent upon that. And that supply has been stopped. And so it's made famine and the conditions that these people are facing even worse. But again, in that same context, Odessa, which is the port on the Black Sea in Ukrainian hands, where that wheat would have been shipped from, was just yesterday hit by some cruise missiles fired by, guess who, the Russians. And so we see how interdependent our world is. And we see how the evil intents of people in one part of the world has severe implications for people elsewhere. And it's that global picture, that bigger picture, that wider story that God would have us at least be aware of if for no other reason that we can pray. And yes, when the opportunity comes, we can give to try to enable the world, especially those most vulnerable in our world, 
to be provided with the basic things of life. A famine is a terrible thing. And that's why the context of the story that we're reading about this morning is just such an event. In 1 Kings 18, right at the beginning of that chapter, we didn't read that, there was enough to read, but we didn't read that part, but we read at the beginning of chapter 18, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Three years, three full seasons, really, that's what they mean. Three seasons of life have passed. And again, that comes home to us. We, we can often be put up with something for a few weeks. And perhaps for a few months. But if it's a medical condition or if it's some problem at work or some domestic situation that's very hard for us to deal with, as the weeks become the months and the months become the year, then it becomes more and more a burden. We start off, and this is when actually when I used to be able to move about more at the front, you could actually demonstrate, because you know I like to act things out. You start off by walking and then you get a wee bit humped on the back. And before you know it, you're on your knees. And by the end of the third year, you're prostrate. You can hardly move. That's the picture that's here of a land blighted in famine. Now, of course, we saw last week that this famine, this blight that fell on the land, was a direct consequences on Israel, particularly the leaders of Israel, King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, and the way that they had gone, done evil in the sight of the Lord. We saw that last week when we read, when Ahab became king, we're told, at the end of chapter 16, he did that which was more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He set up an altar for Baal, the temple of Baal, and he set up an Asherah pole, did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him and so Elijah sent and he says as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve there'll be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word the barrenness of the land and the awfulness of that and the burden of that was actually a literal picture I mean it was a real event but a literal picture of the barrenness and the famine that was spiritually within the land of Israel. God's people called by God, commissioned by God, given identity by God, brought into a covenant relationship with God. That was their identity back in the book of Deuteronomy. As Moses reflects back, he makes the point, it's not because you were better looking or because you were more kind of active or more intellectually able. It was not because you were more humorous that you were given an identity as the people of Israel. It was simply because of God's sovereign grace, who in his purposes called Abraham to be a father of a nation, a nation which in turn was to be a blessing to the nations round about, because as they lived in a faith relationship with the only true God, their life, their witness, how that impacted and who they were and how they behaved and how they related, all of that would have an impact in the pagan nations round about. But they'd lost sight of that. They had sold out to Baal, to the pagan deities. They worshipped, as Paul says in Romans 1, the created things rather than the creator. And the distinctiveness that was meant to mark the people of God had been lost. And not just lost, 
they'd actually become just as bad, if not even worse, than the nations round about. And God will not be mocked. We need to remember that. He is a jealous God. His favor will lie upon those who have kept faith with him, not just for one generation, but down through the generations, perhaps as you do your family tree. Elizabeth and I have been touched and moved by that as we have seen God's gracious hand on our descendants long ago. Members of, was it your family, were married in the Relief Church way back in the 18th century and were people of faith. But God is also a God where when we break faith will cause consequences not only to impact upon us but upon our children and our children's children solemn warning there that we in the church today need to take account of. And so that state of Israel, that barrenness of the land was a sign of just how they had wandered from God. Now not everybody had. We're told, if you want to turn back to chapter 18, now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Then in this little aside, which is actually very important, we're told Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And we'll see the significance of that even more importantly next week, but just take note of that. But anyway, Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we, maybe, can, maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. A desperate searching and longing for, for some provision, some reversal of the current circumstances. Do you not sense that within our own culture today? Like sheep without a shepherd, knowing neither which way to turn, but are looking and are longing and are searching. Perhaps if we get rid of Boris and have somebody else, or if we get independence, or if we're in Europe or out of Europe, or if we do this or we do that, and even our own domestic circumstances, maybe we have this new situation, this new job, this new relationship, let's change our house, let's buy a new car, do all the things that we try to do in order to try and find some solace, some hope, some change that will make a difference to our life. And we try the broken cisterns, and ah, the waters fail. They go in a search. But there wasn't any water or grass. But what there was, we're told, is Obadiah. And Obadiah walks along the road and meets Elijah. And Obadiah recognizes him. We're told in verse 7 of chapter 18, bows down to the ground and says, Is it really you, my Lord? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. I'm going to read this because it's actually quite an insight into the way things were. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah. That you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As sure as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not set someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or a kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. 
I don't know whether the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifteen each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here, he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. You see, my friends, in any society that really ultimately sets itself against God, one of the signs of that, one of the fruits of that, it's not the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness of the Spirit, it's that spirit of timidity and of fear and of oppression watching over your shoulder, wondering what somebody will say, being frightened to maybe do the right thing because actually it will come back like a boomerang and hit you right in the face. That's a sign of a relationship, of a community, or of a nation going away from God. And I'll leave the folk listening to this in line as well as you to try and work what that means for Britain in the 2020s. Because the truth gets battered away Loyalty and faithfulness are only what suits you for the moment. Integrity is something which is very debatable. And so poor Obadiah thinks, no way, Jose. But Elijah appears. And when he appears, look at what he says. We're not good at the whole story. I'm sure we've looked at it many a time before the prophets of Baal. But look at just three things particular that happen. When he arrives, Elijah, and before Ahab, what does Ahab say? Look at what he says. He says, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, I'm sure we're all aware sometimes um, perhaps you know, we, we have people visit us or whatever else and then they go away. I always wonder, you know, it's always interesting, you know, when people after spend time go away, I wonder what they talk about on their way home in the car. <laughs> well, even the laughter explains, you know. And what do people really say about you? He's a right wally. <laughs> He's definitely losing his marbles. But here there's no hiding, no cover-up. Ahab can't do anything else but really say what he thinks. And when he sees Elijah, there's no nice social platitudes. You're trouble. And Elijah. I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals and have summoned the people from all over Israel to meet me in Mount Carmel, bring the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah who ate at Jezebel's table. You see, right, this is, well, I feel this is important to say. We often think, well, surely as Christians we are, after all, Jesus himself said we're supposed to turn the other cheek. Let them slap them, you know, give them your coat, all the rest of it. Let me read to you some words of Jesus in a slightly different perspective 
on what sometimes we think we are meant to be like. Listen to this. So do not be afraid of those, Matthew 10, verse 26. Do not be afraid of those who oppose you, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. Matthew 10, verse 26. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are, you not, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you're worth more than many sparrows. But then look what goes on. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before, before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn, and quoting from the prophet Micah, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will as I read those verses, we've often mentioned, you are not two sparrows sold for a penny, the very hairs of your head are all counted. And we say these verses, and they're meant to be comforting. But we take them out of their context. The context is, you have to know God's care, his protection, his blessing on you, precisely because you're standing your ground and naming the name of Jesus and not giving in to the bully tactics, the intimidation, and the spirit of fear and compromise that fills the age. It's precisely because you're on the front line. How often we heard that phrase over the last two years. Precisely because you're on the front line facing the enemy using not the sword of physical battle but the sword of the spirit which is the word of God clothed in the armor that he alone provides it's in that context that you have to be encouraged to know that the very hairs of your head however many or few or whatever they are are known and that if the God who knows a little sparrow falling out of the tree is concerned about that he knows about you your circumstance and in your situation. That's why, my friends, when you see the church globally, often the most awful circumstances, why is it when you see the church in those parts of the world, we were just in communication. I can't say because we're online, but Elizabeth, through her work in issue, we're communication with believers in another part of the world that are going through a great time of trial. And yet what? You hear their language and you see the pictures. Their face is filled with joy and their language is full of the Lord. Whereas when, no disrespect folks, but when you talk about the faith and the kirk here, it's always just good. I know that particular to talk to ministers in the other denomination. Oh dear, isn't it? Why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons why. But part of it is because we're not on the front line. Well, yes, we are, but we don't realize we're sleeping on watch, which, of course, is a capital offense. 
Jesus we serve is contentious and is a troubler and causes a stir and provokes people to think. That's why folk get defenses, defensive. If you know, if you maybe your children or whatever, and your children go, oh good lord, and you might even say something about the church of being disobedient, you know. <laughs> don't, don't start, you know, whatever, you know. As if you were going to go up to them with a Bible and, you know, kind of physically assault them. They're an old granny, they could knock you over with one. Look, it's not that. It's because right away, the spirit within them, the spirit of the world, the spirit ultimately of the dark forces of the world, is terrified before the power and presence of God. You're not the troubler, it's the spirit of God within you that's the troubler, and they don't want to be troubled. They'd rather eat and drink because then it's just to make sure we don't die tomorrow. But the Jesus that we serve is a troubler. Time's moving on. But as you see in that story, Elijah does not give ground. And even worse than that, you know, and I have to say at this point, I might have thought, well, I've done quite well, Lord. You know, really, you know, I've said my bit. I'll just go home now and have a wee rest. But he doesn't. I mean, look at what he does. I mean, again, we need to read it because it really does bring out. He brings out the prophet. The prophets have been quite a big business, by the way. 450, when you think about it, these folk were fed in water. It was a cushy number to be a prophet of Baal Asherah. You know, they were all right. Hebdales wasn't, but they were okay. Again, vested interests and those who are, you know, there's a lot of things we can take from that. Go home this afternoon and spend some time thinking about it. Um, but they get brought out. Look what Elijah says, verse 25. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God. Do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And see the context of that. He gets them to build this altar, to do all the things they're supposed to do. And he tells the people, he tells the people that now was the time to decide. Verse 21, he goes before the people and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. They were sitting on the fence. And well, nowadays in our very correct age, we take off the sharp bits of the fence, even the church railings. You, know, you can imagine in the olden days sitting on a fence and one of those spikes, would that be a comfortable place to be? Of course not. But the sad thing is, people will sit on the fence and have a bit sticking up there and make up their mind what's right or wrong. That's the spirit of the age. And Elijah says it won't. And he says, do this, get the bulls, do all the things. Verse 24, they'll prepare the food, put it on. And then you will call it in the name of the, your God, and I will call it the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people say, what you say is good. Actually, I think the truth of the matter is, they thought nothing will happen. We can all go home and just get on with our lives. Nothing will happen. But Elijah will not have that. He provokes. And you know, my friends, that's surely the calling. Yes, we're not to be troublemakers. We're not to go around and stir things. 
We're not to be offensive, of course not. But that does not mean that we're not meant to be provocative. That we're not meant to call for a challenge. To call for a decision. To be people whose very lives will stir things up and cause people to stop and think. In our discourse at work, with our mates at school, with our neighbours and families and friends. How we need the Spirit of God. Yes, we are to speak with the, the words anointed by the oil of the Spirit. With a smoothness that comes from the grace of God. But our words are meant and our lives are meant to cause people to think. To get off that fence. And to decide. We should not be, a, we should be apologists for the kingdom and explaining the things of God, and having an understanding of the faith, being able to communicate that to others, but we should never, listen to this, we should never apologize for the king. That is wrong. That is serious sin. And Elijah reminds us one of the reasons why this church and many other churches, faithful folks that we are, are in the state we're in today is precisely because we didn't want to be troublers or provoke people. Thank them for an easier life. Just to go with the flow. Keep their heads down and it'll go well. Does it really matter? It will matter when your family are going into the pit of hell. But all of that is all very well. But if nothing had happened, if the fire hadn't fallen, and folk had just gone back home, then the prophets of Baal would have thought, well, okay, that was a draw, zero, zero, but at least it was a draw. And Elijah and poor Obadiah would have been discredited in dangerous ground. But the fire did fall. Let's just as we close hear again what happens. Elijah, verse 30, says to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him. And you can see that there, there is a longing amongst many of the folks. We're in a mess. You know, we need to see things happen. As I say it to you again, I do sense that from people within society. Come here to me. And they came to him. Repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down and Twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob. Verse 31. To whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it in the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And you can imagine, in a land of drought, to use all this water, you can imagine folk were saying, what a waste of time, what a waste of water. It's all right for him, but what about me? You know, my animals, my, you know, it, it just seems ridiculous. It seems nonsense. It seems foolishness. It seems to go beyond what was necessary. Was it just not enough Elijah for you to stand there and call upon the name of the Lord and see what happens? Why did you have to go to such extremes that the place is actually sodden? Sodden! 
you see what happens when the ground is dry. We've seen it in our own country. We saw it in France and other parts of the world, America and Canada. Terrible fires, parched ground, the heat of the sun. But this place is soaking. It's like sky in a wet day in June. I can assure you it was pretty wet up there. And yet it's precisely because it's foolishness. Precisely because it's extremely unlikely that anything's going to happen. It's the extremities that's God's, what's the word? In the extremities, God's what? Opportunity. He delights to take that which is nothing and to make something of intrinsic and eternal value of. He delights in taking the foolishness of the world and showing the foolishness rather of the gospel of a dead man hanging on the cross. He delights in taking that foolishness, that nonsense, and making it the very power of God to salvation. And he takes circumstances that seem beyond. There's no way anything's going to happen. And what do we read? The fire of the Lord fell burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. The fire of God fell. And my friends, that above everything else should be our longing today in our own nation, that the Spirit of God would come and revive and renew His church. Yes, a church that in so many ways is wandered and feckless and faithless, but that God would have mercy upon that church, that he would build a people. That's why it's so important. You guys sitting here, I'm sorry about that, just, there's a wee group here this morning that are, yes, that are the right age, the right side of, what, 40? A lot, lot, lot younger as well. And it's you guys and girls that we need to pray for. Because it's in our country with all sorts of things going wonky that you've been called to be an Elijah. Maybe not the way Elijah was up front doing all that stuff, but Elijah, the stand of God. There's no greater privilege than to make a stand for God in this day and for generations to come. And we can only do it because as the prophet Zechariah said, it's not by words or by human might, but by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that brought Jesus Christ again from the dead, who lives within the heart of his people, who empowers us and enables us and gives us the words to say, the courage to do it, and the life and the fruit that testify. in the eating of the pudding. The proof was in a fire coming from heaven. And the proof will be in a life courageous enough to stand for Jesus. And the folk round about say, oh, come on, mate. You lost your marble. And that is story. Long ago, written in this ancient book is a story for God's people and God's child.